Thank you for greeting each other warmly, eagerly. Thanks so very much. It's right and good and biblical to do, too, as you can tell, the book of Genesis. If you have a Bible, which I hope you do, or a Bible app on your phone, there are some Bibles in the back. Turn to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. We are returning at long last to our study of this important book, first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. We have preached our way through the opening chapters and the Abraham cycle. And we will finish this book, actually, in case you're wondering, we will finish it this summer with a break before and after Easter. But I want to ask a question before we launch off here, and that's why. Why study this book, the book of Genesis? I want to give you three reasons. There could be many more listed. Let me just give you three that came to my mind quickly. First, we need to be in the Old Testament itself to be exposed to the whole counsel of God. The Old Testament, I read, takes up approximately 75% of your Bible. 39 books. As, as Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle put it, it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. It takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian in terms of maturity, in terms of well-roundedness. So we need to come to the Old Testament and the book of Genesis for the whole counsel of God. Secondly, the Old Testament books, and Genesis perhaps in particular, uniquely displays the, the nature of God, the character of God. Now, the entire Bible does that, but the Old Testament makes its unique contribution of showing you the nature and character of God. Genesis, therefore, helps you be more theocentric, more God-centered. You might think of the famous reformer John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Life. He begins, he begins the Institutes with the reality of how to, to know yourself rightly, you must know God and vice versa. In other words, it's vital that you are theocentric, God-centered to know your world and to know yourself. That's the second reason. And third, the entire Old Testament points you to Jesus. Our Lord himself clearly taught that. The entirety of the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. So let me pray that these three reasons would happen even today for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the whole counsel of your word. All 66 books, inspired, inerrant, infallible. We pray as we return to this critical book of your word that it would expose us again to, to more and more of you. You would reveal yourself more and more to us. We would see more of your nature, more of your character, that we might know you better and know ourselves better and ultimately know our Savior better. So Spirit of God, grant that even today we ask you in Jesus' name. Listen to a reading from God's Word, Genesis 25, 19 through 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, 
the Aramean, of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Mindy, so much. The main point of this sermon is the title, The Triumph of Sovereign Grace. That's what I hope you take away with you this morning. The Triumph of Sovereign Grace. I want to three, see with you those three elements, sovereign and then grace and then the triumph. First, the sovereign part. Verse 19, look at verse 19, signals a new section. It says, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. There are ten of these kinds of statements in Genesis, ten of them, and they mark off different sections. Now we're coming to the section about Isaac, we're told, but really it ends up being much, much to do with Jacob. You see, we left off on a happy occasion. God provided Abraham's son, Isaac, with a wife the lady named Rebecca. But in verse 21, we find they are childless. A situation of great pain in the ancient world and today as well. Now, when you compare verse 26 and the ages we're told of Isaac from 40 to 60 years of age, you realize it's 20 years of childlessness. Imagine that. All we're told in verse 21 is that Isaac prayed. You get the impression Immediately, children were conceived, but it wasn't like that. It was 20 years of grief, 20 years of, of anguish, 
20 years of waiting and waiting and waiting and praying and praying and wondering, God, where are you? And maybe you're in that place this morning and just, I just want to insert here some encouragement for you that God hears your prayers and he knows his plan. If you find yourself in the waiting room of life, in some pain, in some grief, God hears your prayers and he knows his plan. He hears Isaac's prayers for that is part of his plan. You see, you see, there are promises here at stake. Promises of God to redeem, to rescue. If you recall all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, after the disastrous fall of mankind into sin, God said there would be enmity, enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring, as it were, of the, the serpent, the devil. This, this state of conflict would exist, but out of the conflict, a redeemer would emerge. Someone from the woman's line, the woman's offspring, would crush that ancient serpent's head. And so these promises are held out to us, and then they begin to get worked out in a guy named Abraham about 2000 B.C., to Abraham, God made some astounding promises, furthermore, saying, I will give you a land, make you into a people, and through you, Abraham, through you will come blessing to all peoples of the earth, that promise of a redeemer. It, it's what you, you see here, what we're going to find is this progressive narrowing of salvation, narrowing down from Eve's offspring down to Abraham, down to his descendants, one nation, until finally it's down to one person, Jesus, the blessing to all nations. That's why it's vital that, Abra that Isaac rather, and Rebekah have children. The baton must be handed off in this relay race of God's promises and his purpose to redeem. Twenty years go by. Finally, we're told in verse 21, the Lord heard Isaac's prayer. He granted Isaac's prayer. Children are conceived, but still not all is well. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, the children struggled together within her, Rebecca, and she said, if it is thus... Why is this happening to me? The, the children are literally smashing each other in the womb. That's the word that's used. They're smashing each other, and Rebecca is despairing of life. And so she asks God, what is going on? And God gives a kind of oracle to explain. Look at verse 23. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two nations. And two peoples from within you shall be divided, separated. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, this is very important for the rest of the book of Genesis, actually. Two nations, two peoples, separated, one stronger than the other. And the surprising twist, the older will serve the younger. See, it's surprising because that's not how it happened in this culture. In this culture, the older child had legal 
inheritance rights over the younger. This kind of thing was common in many cultures. You might think of Jane Austen novels like Pride and Prejudice or the TV show Downton Abbey where so much revolves around specific rights of inheritance. It was kind of like that. But here God sovereignly chooses to upend social norms of that day saying the the older will serve the younger. And the Apostle Paul looks at our passage and sees an illustration of God's sovereignty in salvation. This is important to, to note. When a New Testament writer explicitly quotes your Old Testament passage, they are often giving what's often called a fuller sense, a fuller sense of what the Spirit wants us to understand from God's Word. And that's what was happening or what did happen here. The Apostle Paul quotes Genesis 25 in Romans 9. Just listen. He writes, Though though Jacob and Esau were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, she was told the older will serve the younger. Did you hear that? Though they hadn't been born yet, though these two twin boys had done nothing yet, good or bad, but that God's sovereign purpose, God's sovereign purpose of election might continue. That's why we read the older will serve the younger. Now that might raise for you all kinds of questions, questions that we can't fully answer. But you should know this much. If you are a Christian, if you have genuinely been born again by the Holy Spirit, then Scripture teaches the ultimate reason why you are a Christian is the same. God's sovereign purpose of election. Not saying you didn't need to repent and believe. Scripture commands that. I'm saying the ultimate reason why you did repent and believe was because of God's sovereign purpose of election. Now, is that mysterious? Oh, yes. But it is also glorious if it applies to you. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century prince of preachers, captures this. Just just listen and take this in. I just want you to listen to these things. Spurgeon writes, I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, like Jacob. Or else he never would have chosen me afterwards, in light of my sin. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Oh, there is mystery, but it is glorious if you're an object of his special love. 
And parents, I just thought of you here as well that you should make some application, make some connection for your own parenting. The eternal future of your child is not finally dependent on you. See, as parents, we can live with this burden of, I have to do it all, quote-unquote, right, whatever that is for you. Now, you are a vital means of grace, but you are not the sovereign means, okay? You're vital, you're important, you're not determinative. So let that free you from guilt. Let that free you from a sense of shame. I, you know, I'm failing. I failed my child or what have you. We want to pursue faithfulness to evangelize and disciple while you trust God's sovereignty and entrust your child to him. That's the sovereign part. And that relates to the grace. I think we're seeing the grace already, but let's see the second part, the grace here. You see, finally, the, the happy day comes. The twins are born. Look at verse 25. The first came out red. And his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. There's a sound play here that we can't pick up. Sound play between the Hebrew word for hairy and the name Esau. So they name him Esau. Kind of like calling you hairy. I don't know, not so great. I mean, H-A-I-R-Y. Verse 26, afterward, his twin brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. The younger brother is grasping, grasping at the heel of Esau. And the name given is Jacob because Jacob relates to the Hebrew word for heel. But it's also symbolic because this word can be a metaphor for someone who is a deceiver, a cheat. And we're going to see Jacob live up to that or down to that name. Verse 27. We get a little character check here. See what they're like. Verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in Intense. You kind of catch the contrast between these two twin boys. Esau is the outdoorsman. He's rough. He's, he's rugged. You know, he's hunting big game. Jacob is quiet, which actually is a word translated throughout the Old Testament as blameless. But he's anything but that. But this might be a way to connect him with Abraham and Noah, who were said of, of them said the same. And we're told Jacob is a tent dweller. And the point there is not that he's a, a homebody. But again, I think this is a connection with Abraham and Isaac, who were said to dwell in tents. In other words, we're getting hints here, hints that Jacob is to carry the baton of the promises of God. But remember what God said in that oracle to Rebekah about these boys. There's going to be conflict, division, separation, and that division raises its ugly head already. Look at verse 29. Verse 29. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, 
Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Literally, literally Esau is saying, let me gulp down some of that red stuff, that red stuff. Commentators say he's portrayed oaf-like. Give me the red stuff. Esau is all about the present, all about the tangible, all about the here and now. And, and verse 30 adds parenthetically, therefore his name was called Edom. That's important. Keep that in mind. There's another play on, on words here. Edom sounds like the Hebrew word for red. Verse 31, Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. It's sell it at once, emphatically to me. Sell it now to me, now. This moment, the, the impression, the impression you're supposed to pick up is Jacob's been planning this. Jacob's been waiting for a moment of weakness in his brother. I mean, brotherly love would just offer some stew, right? Have some stew, brother. He doesn't do that. Esau's hunger is met with a calculating brother. You see, the birthright, the birthright was the legal status, the legal status of the firstborn. These, these inheritance rights I mentioned, it meant legal headship in the family later on. Jacob wants Esau to surrender what is of great worth long-term for short-term satisfaction of his hunger. And Esau could care less. He is flippant about what really matters in life. Look at verse 32. Esau said, I'm about to die, which was not the case. He's quite talkative for a dying man. I'm about to die. I'm so hungry. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. Let's make it legal. Give me an oath. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Catch this. When, when they were born, all Jacob did was, was grasp at his heel. But now he has legally surpassed his brother Esau. Now it's true that the oracle from God to Rebekah said this would happen. The older would serve the younger. But Jacob, catch this, Jacob would not wait for God to bring to pass his own promises. Jacob wants to bring it to pass by his own scheming. Jacob is cunning and devious. Jacob is a self-reliant, scheming heel grabber. For God to use Jacob, for God to now center his purposes on Jacob, for God to hand the baton off of his promises to Jacob is pure grace. Pure Sovereign grace. But it's interesting, we, we get no comment on Jacob's actions, but we do get comment on Esau's actions, which is something you want to pay attention to. Verse 34, Thus Esau despised his birthright. To despise means here to, to treat as worthless, to, to hold it in contempt, he holds in contempt what really matters in, in, in life. And a, this is a, another Old Testament verse that a New Testament writer comments on. 
So again, pay attention to those moments. This is another verse like that. In Hebrews chapter 12, in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12, it calls Esau a profane man, an unholy man, because of this despising of his birthright. You see, the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians tempted to leave Jesus because of some persecution. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying, don't be like Esau. Esau is an example, a warning to not trade what is of long-term, infinite value, Jesus, with short-term relief from persecution. Don't trade what is of long-term, surpassing worth with some short-term gratification. You know, I thought... I thought of you, our young people here at this point. Recently, I read about a picture, a painting that, I don't know if you read about this, it hung over a, a hot plate of a 90-year-old woman's house in, in France. 90-year-old woman in France had a hot plate, had this painting over the hot plate always. Turned out to be a rare Renaissance painting. A small auction house, when she was getting rid of her stuff, came in. An art expert looked at this painting, always hanging over her hot plate, and said, that could be worth three hundred dollars to $400,000. They said, let's send it to Paris. An old master's expert in Paris looks at it and recognizes the artist and says, I think it's worth 15 times that. It goes to auction and sells for a record $26.8 million. The lady thought it was just some knockoff painting. It's just the same old painting I look at all day long, every day, hanging over my hot plate. Same old painting. There it is again. Same old painting, nothing special, when in fact it was a rare treasure worth almost $27 million. Listen, young people, that's your temptation when it comes to the gospel, the good news of Jesus. To think like that lady, same old painting, same old painting, same old message, same old good news, same old gospel, same old Bible. And you make the mistake of Esau. You trade with what is of surpassing value, Jesus, for some short-term gratification. I wonder what the world offers me. You trade what is of infinite, eternal value, Jesus, I wonder what thrill I can find over here, short term. Don't make the mistake of Esau. It's a bad trade. It's a foolish trade. God builds his people by his grace, his sovereign grace, a grace we must not take for granted. As Peter said, let us make our calling and election sure. But what about that triumph piece? What about that? I said it's the triumph of God's sovereign grace. Where, where's the triumph here? Well, remember our inspired author is a guy named Moses, and he is recounting this scene 
for purposes in his own day. That's where meaning is, is centered in the Bible. Original author to original audience. That's the center of meaning, at least. Moses, the inspired author, is leading the people of Israel. They've been delivered out of slavery in Egypt. They're now in, a, in the plains of a place called Moab, about to enter the promised land, that land promised to Abraham. Why does that matter? Well, remember something. Remember the relationship between Jacob and Esau, how God said two nations will come from them. Jacob, Jacob gives rise to the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. Esau, do you remember, gives rise to the people of Edom, the Edomites. Well, when Israel was coming out of Egypt, Moses respectfully asked the king of Edom, could we please pass through your land? And he said, no. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 20. So now Edom is hostile to Israel. Edom is the enemy of Israel. So when the Israelites in Moses' day read, the older serves the younger, Esau serves Jacob, they would read what? Edom serves Israel by God's sovereign grace. And that's what would happen in David's reign. In, in other words, this narrative of Jacob and Esau it would have given God's embattled people, God's embattled people in the plains of Moab, it would have given them confidence, confidence in God's ultimate triumph, confidence to persevere, confidence that they will ultimately triumph by God's sovereign grace. That was to help them then and is to help us now in a similar way. See, that same conflict, it even extended past Moses' day. In the, in the 6th century B.C., when the Babylonians invaded Israel, do you know who blocked the Israelites' escape from the Babylonians? You want to guess? People of Edom. Do you know who participated and rejoiced in the destruction of Jerusalem? People of Edom. The book of Obadiah is written about God's judgment on Edom for doing so. It's a conflict that even you can find hinted at in the New Testament era. After Jesus is born in Bethlehem and wise men come at some point saying to Herod, we want to worship the king of the Jews. You say to paranoid King Herod, we want to worship a different king. What's he going to do? He wiped out the little children living all around Bethlehem to try to wipe out that king. Do you know Herod's background? He was from Edom. It's a picture of the conflict that continues today. It's symbolic of that enmity between offspring of God and offspring of the devil. You know, arrayed against the church are a world in rebellion to God and our ancient enemy, the devil himself. That's why the church on earth is called the church militant. 
The church engaged in battle. The church engaged in warfare. We wrestle. We wrestle against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, says Ephesians chapter 6. And God's message to his embattled people in Moses' day is the same message that he has for his embattled people today, that you will ultimately triumph by his sovereign grace. Do you see this is why, in your, it's, what, why it's in your Bible? It's so important we believe this message, the triumph of God's sovereign grace, and so persevere. Um, a sad and, for many, devastating moment in 2019 was the, the fire of Notre Dame in Paris last year. Dry timbers combined with maybe an electrical malfunction and an outdated, they say, outdated fire warning system. And some wrote afterwards, this devastating fire was a metaphor for the decline of the church. That the church of Jesus Christ was deteriorating, outdated. Do you feel like that? Does church feel to you like it's just some worn out carpeting? It's past its usefulness. We don't need such, you know, institutional religion. It's a ship taking on water. It's time to head for the lifeboats. And Jesus promised, you may be aware, in Matthew 16, verse 18, He will build His church. The gates of Hades, the gates of death will not prevail. That's saying the church will not die. But maybe you're thinking, I think its obituary needs to be written. I had a relative ask me recently about the decline, he said, of the church in the U.S. He mentioned denominations that are shrinking and that the evangelical church is just treading water, not sure about the stats. He asked me about that. Maybe that's how you feel. You look on this world, you see a defeated church. You think God's purposes and God's plan have been neutered. Listen, this passage... It ultimately lays bare the, the, the bedrock, the foundation for the church of Jesus Christ. It, it pulls back the veil. It, it lays bare the, the bedrock for the people of God and the bedrock for your own life if you are a believer in Jesus. And it says that bedrock is absolutely solid and lasting. It's built on God's sovereign grace, the triumph of His sovereign grace in His people. That's supposed to give you confidence right now. An assurance that nothing will hinder His purposes. That the church militant on earth will forever be the church triumphant in heaven. As I told my relative, people have been writing the obituary for the church for 2,000 years. It's not going anywhere. No need for the lifeboats. Friends, you must believe that. You must believe that, to believe the triumph of God's sovereign grace and to believe that for yourself if you are one of his people. Let's personalize this. Maybe you're here and you're, you're just disheartened this morning with sin and just general struggles, with temptations and with trials. We talked last week about suffering 
And that's a reality. Maybe you come in here and you're weighed down by hardship or anxiety or fear or your own failures this week. Maybe you barely made it in today. And thank you for coming if so. You think of being included in the church triumphant and that seems like a pipe dream to you. You feel defeated, not part of some triumph. Well, suffering is real in this life, but the ultimate triumph of Christ among his people is just as real. God has given us the end of the story that we're caught up in, like in Revelation 17, verse 14. Just listen. Revelation 17, verse 14. They, the enemies of God, will make war on the Lamb. Jesus. They make war on the Lamb. And here's the end of the story. The Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And then it says, and those with Him, those with Him are called and chosen and faithful, objects of His sovereign grace. The Lamb will be victorious. The Lamb will conquer. And with Him are His people who participate in His victory. The called, the chosen, the faithful. So when this world opposes you, you must hear Jesus' words in John 16, verse 33. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, take heart. I have overcome the world. You must believe that. And when you feel discouraged, you must hear God's word to his disheartened people like 1 John 4, verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them for, here's why, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You must believe that. And when you feel overwhelmed and you think you can't go on any longer, you must hear God's word in 1 John 5, verse 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, our faith in Christ. Believe, friends, God's, the triumph of God's sovereign grace among His people, in His church, and sweeping you up in that great victory so that when you are there with the church triumphant, you realize you will sing these words, as we'll do in a moment, on that day. When freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. That's going to be your song. On that day when freed from sinning, when I'm transformed from within, and I have the beautific vision, the vision of Jesus seeing him face to face, and I am clothed, in blood-washed linen. My song going to be the triumph of your sovereign grace. That's your hope. That's your confidence. That's your assurance to keep you going right now. Because Christ has conquered our sin. Christ has taken the wrath we deserve. Christ has defeated the enemy of our souls. If you've yet to believe that, if you've yet to trust in Him like that, 
Oh, please do, friend. Christ has conquered your sin if you believe. Christ has taken the wrath we have earned if you believe. Christ has conquered our spiritual foe if you will turn to him believing. So you too, friend, join us in believing in the triumph of God's sovereign grace. I want to take a moment for us all to respond in prayer. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. The music team can come. I want to give you a moment to put your confidence in Him, to put at rest your fears, your worries, your anxieties, to cast upon Christ your failures. I want to give you a moment to respond if you've been taking this grace for granted, if you've been making that horrible exchange of what is of great long-term value for some short-term gratification, I want to give you a chance to respond. I want to give you a chance to respond as well if you have yet to come to Christ that you will trust in His life, death, and resurrection to bring you to God and He will. So take a moment to pray if you would, please.